Okay, well, our scripture this morning is going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, primarily, although we're going to look at quite a few scriptures in the book of Hebrews. So find Hebrews 1, and then we'll work from there. And I wanted to all sort of change gears for a week. Um, last, last year, we took one of our uh, first Sunday Lord's Supper services and uh, did sort of an intensive look at the Lord's Supper itself. And I thought that was helpful. So I wanted to take one Sunday this year and do something similar. So today we're going to focus on the idea of Christ's sacrifice. And uh, we're going to be looking at that primarily in the book of Hebrews. It's good to step back and, and take a look at the big picture every once in a while. We're right in the middle of Matthew, and I have thoroughly enjoyed that study. Um, but at times, I feel a little bit like we can get in the weeds, and that's okay. They're good weeds. Um, they're maybe sanctified weeds. But it's good to take, take a step back and look at the whole body of water, and that's what I want to do this morning. From the shadow of Christ in the Old Testament where his perfection and his ministry were foretold to the people of old, to the substance of his being and his personhood that we've seen all throughout the book of Matthew. One of the things we've seen is that the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the coming of Christ is all about fulfillment. Over and over again in the book of Matthew, we've seen that uh, what's usually called a, a, a fulfillment formula or a quotation formula, something like this. This was done in order to fulfill what was written by the prophet, or he said this concerning what was written by the prophet. Over and over, we've seen those kinds of quotes, and usually they're from the Psalms or the prophets. Many of them have been from the book of Isaiah, and they all point to what is one of the big themes in Matthew, how Christ fulfills and gives the greater meaning to those things. Well, one of the greatest fulfillments, perhaps the greatest, is Christ's fulfillment of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now, last month when we had our Lord's Supper celebration, we talked a bit about the Passover story, the significance of that last supper with Jesus and his disciples and how he brought the meaning to bear from the Passover to his own death to come. That Passover lamb, Many of them were sacrificed each year, and the blood reminded the people of God's deliverance from Egypt. And it was that picture of how a sacrifice was needed for that deliverance. The Passover story and that event in history is probably the most significant event in Jewish history. It was a watershed moment and a moment of remembrance and thankfulness, even to this day. So consider the weight then and the importance of the fact that Christ Jesus points to himself as the fulfillment of those things, the true and greater Passover lamb. In Luke's account of that Last Supper, we read these words where Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Hear Christ's words of fulfillment in that passage. Another place we see this 
is in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where Paul is encouraging the believers there in Corinth to purge the old leaven of their sins. And he says this, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened because Christ, our Passover lamb, literally our Paschal lamb, has been sacrificed. Yes, Christ Jesus is the great fulfillment of that Passover lamb, that sacrifice. But before we jump into Hebrews 1, in particularly verse 3, I also want to see how Christ is also a fulfillment of the other sacrifices in the Old Testament, because there were quite a few of them that were made regularly in the worship of Israel. And I'm just going to breeze through these a little bit. We can't give them a lot of time, but just, just for our information, one sacrifice or one offering was the burnt offering, which was made twice a day, morning and evening, every day. An offering of an unblemished goat or lamb, an unblemished animal that was offered up as a sweet aroma to God to show the devotion and worship of the people of Israel every day. But we see that Christ is that true offering, a sweet-smelling aroma to God. In fact, Ephesians 5.2 even says that, that Christ now is a sweet-smelling aroma to God. I want to read that from Ephesians 5, verse 2. First, verse 1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Christ fulfills that picture of the burnt offering, that sweet-smelling, fragrant aroma. There also was a grain offering. The grain offering accompanied all the burnt offerings. It was a mixture of flour, of salt, of oil, and spice. And it was also a sweet-smelling aroma up to God. But it also bore the image of God's provision in that image of the grain. You might even think of bread. And Christ himself said, I am the bread of life. Christ is God's provision to us as we see imaged even in the Lord's Supper, but he also is that sacrifice that reminds us and provides us with God's true provision. There's another type of offering as well uh, called the peace offering. And the peace offering actually had three different forms, one of which was the free will offering, which was sort of an uncoerced gift that was offered on the part of the giver out of thanksgiving to God. Another peace offering was one that you would offer after a vow. Uh, you would make an offering after fulfilling a vow to signify that it had been fulfilled. We see that pictured in the story of Hannah and Samuel, how she made a vow and gave up her son Samuel for the temple service, and she offered a sacrifice along with it. And then finally of the peace offerings, we see the thanksgiving offering, which was typically an offering to express gratitude for deliverance in time of dire need. Well, of those offerings, we know that Christ is our peace. He gave himself up freely, like the free will offering. He fulfilled his vow to obey the Father perfectly, and he is our deliverance in our greatest need. There are also two other main types of sacrifices, the sin offering and the trespass offering. The sin offering was generally for the whole congregation and sin in general, and the trespass offering was typically for individuals or specific instances of sin. 
And of course, of all the offerings, the way in which Christ fulfills those, the sin offering and trespass offering, is significant as we consider the Lord's Supper today with his dying, his bleeding, his passion, and his sacrifice. We consider why. Why the need for such a significant sacrifice? Why the need for such an offering? I was reminded in the story of Job. We all know Job's story. A man who God allowed to undergo terrible tragedy in his life to test his faith. And he had some friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And a lot of the things that his three friends told him were not very helpful. But in Job 25, his friend Bildad asked what I think is an interesting and very important question. The question is this, how then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? And that is one of the main questions, if not the main question concerning Christ's sacrifices, how can mankind, men and women, be made pure? How can we be in the right before God? Because at the end of the day, man's greatest need is not to have gifts or even good feelings or even to have a good family or to have total fulfillment in this life. Sort of where the rubber meets the road is the need of man to be right before God, to be made right and to be made pure. So we ask the same question that Bildad asked, how can man be right before God? And that's where I want to go this morning to Hebrews 1. And we'll read verses 1 through 3. Again, we'll focus primarily on the end of verse 3. But let's read that passage. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse number 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand, of the majesty on high. We'll stop there. Today, I want to simply examine Christ's sacrifice. And we cannot do it fully. We cannot do it comprehensively, but I think we can do it meaningfully. This is really the main event of the incarnation. In Matthew, we've seen Christ as a great teacher, but Christ didn't come simply to be a great teacher. We've seen him perform signs and wonders, but he didn't come primarily to perform signs and wonders. He came to make purification for sins. As it was even prophesied to his own mother, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He came to make atonement. He came to answer that question. How can man be made right before God? So simply today, let us behold the wonder of Christ's finished sacrifice. Before we go any further, let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for the privilege of opening the scriptures this morning together. 
I pray that we would see these truths together, that by the illumination and the filling of the Holy Spirit, we would learn and grow and be changed, that we would follow as we hear and obey, that we would, as your sheep, hear your voice, that we would see you as that great fulfillment. As we sang earlier, our treasure, our our all in all. Lord Jesus, help us now as we look at your word. We pray this in your name, amen. Well, first, as we look at this, we'll see his accomplished purification. And if you're looking on the back of your bulletin, you'll see that outline there. His accomplished purification. Hebrews is, like Matthew, all about Christ's fulfillment. Um, it's really a great partner to Matthew's gospel in that, in that it shows so many ways in which Christ fulfills what the Old Testament pictured and shadowed. And I told you we we're going to jump around a little bit in Hebrews. So the first place I want to go is Hebrews 10, because this is another place that talks even more in depth about what we read at the end of Hebrews 1.3. Hebrews 10 verse 11 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We see in that passage sort of a drawn out image of that little glimmer we read in Hebrews 1.3. We should note that the main thing to note about Christ's sacrificial work is the fact that it is finished. Christ has accomplished that work. We note very carefully that he did not begin a work of paying for sin that we must somehow complete, but rather that he has done it all, once and for all time. If there were anything left for us to do, as far as atoning for our sin, of making a payment for it, then even the best of us would leave that undone. One commenter I read from this week said this, by making purification for sins, the Son accomplished something which no one else could achieve. The forgiveness he has won is permanent, and because the barrier between God and humanity has been removed, it results in entry into the presence of God himself. The work that Christ has accomplished in his sacrifice is wonderful. The word that is used both in Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 10 is the word purification. And the word there behind that is the word where we get our English word catharsis. We may not use that in everyday conversation, but the idea of catharsis is the idea of, of cleansing or healing. Oftentimes it's used to speak of an emotional healing or cleansing or therapeutic effect. But that's not how the writer of Hebrews was using the word. Some of it has been lost in translation because the the catharsis that Christ accomplished was not simply for our emotions or 
some sort of healing. It was a cleansing of man's great dilemma, which is named specifically the dilemma of sin. He made purification for sin. We see the need for purification. Christ made purification for sins. If that cleansing was not simply from, say, stress or emotional issues or anxiety, but but rather for the underlying issue of, of human sinfulness, then we ask the question, is that really a big deal? Is sin really an issue that is worth all this attention? Well, the short answer to that is yes. Yes, it is. We could go many places. I want to read from Isaiah 64. So some powerful imagery. Listen as I read. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Our sin is a blight in the pure vision of the holy, righteous God. As Isaiah wrote there, even the best of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Paul wrote in Romans 1 concerning our sin, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So is it a big deal? Is sin worth focusing on? Is it worth asking that question? How can we be cleansed? Yes, it is. Because A, the problem is that we all have sin. And B, it can't simply be ignored because God's wrath is rightfully upon sin. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is the plight of our lives before God. We have sin. We have unrighteousness. We should say we are unrighteous. We have guilt. We are guilty. And there's no way around it. And unless one is tempted to think, well, I've avoided the stain of sin in my life. I've lived nobly. This is not an issue for me. Well, the scripture speaks clearly against that notion. Again, in Romans, we read 3.23, for all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one has avoided the stain of sin. No one can get out from under its power or the power of the enemy by themselves. From the sin of Adam in Genesis, sin has been passed down to every man who has walked the face of this earth, except one, the man Christ Jesus. Back to Hebrews chapter 10 again, reading from verse 1 and following. Since the law 
has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been cleansed once, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And skipping down a bit in the passage to verse 11, we read, And every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which, again, can never take away sins. The author of Hebrews is telling us there that all of the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow of things to come. It shows that sin must be paid for. It shows even that the price of sin is the shedding of blood. It showed that sin is messy and deadly and unattractive and repulsive and damaging. And the sacrificial system was seemingly unending, as, as he says, year after year, day after day just as the sins of mankind are continual as well. If we received forgiveness for the sins of today, we would soon be back for more forgiveness because we are born as slaves to unrighteousness. But we see the price of purification was paid by Christ. The priests in the Old Testament the sacrificial system, they were the best they could be. They were righteous men. They were devout men. They were doing what they were told to, what they could. But as we read, they offered the same sacrifice repeatedly because the sacrifice could never and was not meant to perfect. They were obedient to God, but they could not take away sin finally. And that was by design, because as the author of Hebrews tells us, those sacrifices were only ever meant to be a shadow, only ever meant to be an image, a precursor. The high priests were necessary for many years until the great high priest came. Chapter 9 in Hebrews, verse 11 and following says this, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh? Listen, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's a lot there, but notice some of the big themes. Christ is the high priest of the good things that were to come. He is the greater and more perfect one. His sacrifice was once for all. And we see that question, how much more 
this is a sacrifice of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. Purify us and present us before God as his holy servants. Christ's sacrifice was not simply more of the same. It wasn't just a bigger version of the same thing. As a high priest and as a man making sacrifices for own, his own sins and the sins of others, there was no way that that could ever take away finally sin. But Christ's sacrifice was the good thing to come, the greater and more perfect, the how much more once and for all sacrifice. He came as the high priest and the sacrifice. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ came to be our high priest. He endured the temptations and troubles of the life that we have, yet he did it without sin. So he is the sinless high priest and also the sinless sacrifice. Therefore, he didn't just make purification possible by being our good example. He made purification by offering himself. Yes, the high priest and the sacrifice, the giver and the gift, the offering and the offerer, the only one who could accomplish this. We're reminded in Romans 5, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All through scripture, in the images of the sacrificial System In the pages of both the Old and New Testament, we see that death is the result and the penalty of sin. It's a punishment that we've earned. It's a picture of the fall and the curse, and every one of us is subject to it. Death is something that God himself never had to experience or be subject to, but Christ subjected himself to it willingly to make purification. For our sin. We see death. We see the curse. We see the mess that our sin has made. But then we see Christ. Christ Jesus who died for the ungodly. Christ Jesus who died for sinners like you and like me. What a display of God's love. What an outpouring of grace. The cost of purification was high. Higher than we could pay either individually or collectively. But Christ, our perfect high priest, one person, once and for all time, has paid that price. What a Savior. What a Savior. Perhaps one of the more, most familiar verses in all of Scripture tells this story so succinctly Yet beautifully, in John 3.16, says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God gave his only son 
the unique son of God, the Messiah, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life. Everyone, including you and I, if we believe, those of us who deserve that death and that punishment, but for all those who believe in coming to Christ, we find a perfect savior. A perfect savior who paid for that sin that we have committed, that, that wrath that we have incurred, that debt that we have built up, that gap that we have continually widened, he bridged by his sacrifice. The need for purification is great and the price of purification is high, but Christ, our perfect sacrifice and great high priest, paid it for all who will come to him by faith. Have you called upon this savior? Have you seen this Christ as more than just a teacher and a man and a miracle worker, but as the sacrificial lamb slain once and for all time for my sin and yours? Have you seen him? Have you met him? Have you come to him? That's not a hypothetical question. It's the question of the moment. It's the question of the hour. It's the question that is perhaps most pertinent for you in this moment. And only you can answer it. But I ask, have you called upon the Savior? Secondly, we see his glorious exaltation. Back to Hebrews 1, in the very end of verse 3, we read that after making purification for sins, which is what we just looked at, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We can't ignore this part of the verse because Jesus didn't die simply as a martyr of good deeds and good living, but he died and he rose again and his resurrection and his ascension, his continual living have wonderful implications for us today. Notice that it says, after making purification, he sat down. This is an image in opposition to those priests in the temple who offered sacrifices daily and their work was was never finished. They never sat down, so to speak. Of course, they, they took a chair every once in a while, but they could never sit down and say, that's the last one. That's the final sacrifice needed. That's the one that finished it all. But Christ, having finished that work, could sit down at the right hand of God, the Father on high, and say, truly, it has been finished. It is accomplished. And he did not just, again, sit down, but he sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. We see the height of Christ's exaltation in those words. Hebrews 8, verse number 1 says this. The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The high priests once yearly on the day of atonement were permitted to go into the Holy of Holies, to to go before that holy place and offer that yearly sacrifice. But our great high priest did not just approach the father. He is seated at his right hand. He is his eternal son. His sacrifice has been finished. What is the significance of being at God's right hand? Well, there's many things. That's a place of honor. 
It's a place of favor. It's a place of privilege. It's a place of victory. And it's a place of power. Jesus, our Savior, is at the right hand of God, sharing the throne of the Father, so to speak. One of the big pictures in Hebrews that we get is the, is the argument that Jesus is more than just a man. He's more than a priest, more than a prophet, even more than an angel. Jesus is the unique son of God and God himself. His equality is seen all throughout the book, but it's seen maybe most clearly in this, where he is seated, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God waiting for the day when all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Christ is equal with God because he is God and only God, listen, only God could make the appropriate payment for sin. Only God possesses that perfection. Only God possesses the ability to satisfy the debt that we've incurred. Only God could and only God did in the person of Jesus Christ. We see the weight, we also, we we see the height, but we also see the weight or the gravity of Christ's exaltation. Because it is high, he's not just been lifted up above men slightly, but he's exalted to the throne of God. Its weight is also high because it is immense and powerful. Christ's exaltation tells us Many things, but three of those things it tells us is, one, Christ is Lord, which is a message through all the scripture. In the early days of the church, there was was a constant battle between the Christians and the society around them because the call upon the people in the Roman government was to say that Caesar is Lord. But in good conscience, a follower of Christ could never say that because they know that only Christ is Lord. And not only is he Lord, but he's, secondly, our intercessor. At the right hand of God, he is making intercession for us continually as our high priest. One of the simplest and sweetest reminders in all of Scripture is that as for believers, the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for you moment by moment. But also, his exaltation reminds us that he is coming back. He is coming back. Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. Just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. May we be the ones who are eagerly awaiting for the Son. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is given instruction about the Lord's Supper, he tells us that we do this each time in remembrance of him, and that in that we show the Lord's death until he comes. So that it's a, a reminder, not just of the Passover and the story of Israel's history, not just of the sacrifice of Christ, and what he accomplished, but it's also a reminder each time we do it that he's coming again because his sacrifice was completed, finished, accepted by God. He's seated at the right hand of God and waiting for the appropriate time where he will return 
as the scripture says, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. May we be, again, the ones who are eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior. May we be the ones who, by God's grace, have our sins forgiven, God's wrath satisfied on our behalf. May we go before his throne daily as he's interceding for us, and may we exalt him as Lord in all that we say and do, and may we live for him and serve him in righteousness, our master, each day as we await his return. And today, as we pause now to observe the Lord's Supper, may we behold the wonder of Christ's finished sacrifice. Let's bow for prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for being that once and for all time sacrifice, that sinless, spotless, perfect lamb, pictured by all those spotless lambs that were offered daily, yearly, time and time again, which were not intended to take away sin fully, but to point forward to the one who did. Your work is done in that respect, Lord, which means so much for us who have received your forgiveness. May we not take it lightly, take it for granted. May we not squander it. May we rejoice in it. And may it also flow through us practically as we live for you and point others to the same hope that we have found. Help us now as we observe the supper as you've told us to do, you've commanded us to do. Help us to see it richly, not just as a ritual or a monthly practice that we do because we have to, Lord. May we see this as a sweet reminder Use the imagery of the red, of the fruit of the grape, and the bread that is broken. May we see the richness of all that's wrapped up in that. How it extends even now in our forgiveness, but also, Lord, as you nourish us day by day through your word, through your provision through the Holy Spirit. May we, in that respect, feast on these things, even in this just little reminder of it. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.